Travis had asked me this morning uh, if when we transitioned, if I just wanted to walk up or if I wanted him to introduce me. And I told him, I want you to introduce me like LeBron James coming back to Cleveland. <laughs> and I'm guessing that's what that was. That's, <laughs> you forgot the dust. He's doing the dust motion in the back if you can't see him. <clears throat> we'll work on it next week. Uh, but Merry Christmas. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see all of you. We'll be going through the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I will read the text and pray, and then we'll start. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You as we do every Sunday. Lord, just pleading for Your help. Pleading that You would reorient our hearts wherever they may have drifted this week or even this morning. Or perhaps coming to you with rejoicing and thanksgiving uh, as a result of answered prayer, as a result of you showing up in the midst of trials, the midst of pain, the midst of anxiety, and bringing peace. We just come before you, Lord, as a united body, praying that you would just take this morning to draw near to us, to draw us upward, to reveal more of Christ's glory to us in this time. We thank you especially for this season, this Christmas season. We thank you for all of the activities and the sights that we get to enjoy from lights to different festivities and activities and just all the things that come along with the Christmas season that bring cheer to so many. We thank you especially for our primary reason for rejoicing in this time. 
the fact that it's during this time that we commemorate the birth of our Lord into this world. The pre-incarnate, pre-existing Christ taking on flesh and dwelling among a fallen people. Inaugurating a plan of salvation for all who would trust in His name. I pray that you would just give us a glimpse of His birth, of His coming into the world this morning. And let it transform the rest of how we enjoy Christmas and ultimately the rest of our lives. It's in His holy name that we pray. Amen. So when you think of Christmas, as soon as you hear the word Christmas, what are some of the the images that that come to your mind? Um, It may be of immediately you think of reindeer uh, with Rudolph, or you think of stockings hanging from the chimney, or you think of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That's my chance of uh, singing. That's all you're going to get. But all the different things that you think of, gifts under the Christmas tree, all these things, um, all of this, this, this busy activity and cheerful environment that happens during this, this Christmas season. These are some of the things that most people think of when they think of Christmas. And I was drawn to, I was thinking of a particular image that's flashed in my mind that's a little bit different. And I don't know if I saw it in a movie or if I, was, uh, if I read of it, but the image is of a, a boy, an eager boy, who on Christmas Eve looks out through his window through a telescope or a microscope, not a microscope, but a telescope, into the sky, into the night sky, into the, the snowy air. And off in the faint distance, he can see this, this silhouette of this figure streaking through the clouds in the midst of a silent night. And just how different that, that quiet, subtle, tranquil scene is of ultimately the the Santa Claus streaking through the sky, beginning his night. I was thinking of that image because when we as Christians uh, envision the coming of Christ into the world, the birth of Christ into the world, typically we're drawn to some of the images that we see in the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of the baby in the manger, of the perilous flight from to and from Egypt to Bethlehem, ultimately, um, the wise men coming and bowing at his feet, shepherds coming from the fields to, to worship him as well. And just this vivid scene of all these things in motion of the Christ, of this infant child coming into the world. And yet that Christmas story is not how John chooses to depict it. John takes us all the way back to that faint, dim, unfocused picture of the word at the very beginning of time. And he begins the Christmas story there. So I thought we might focus on how John uh, capitulates the, the Christmas story for us in his gospel. So he starts in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, anyone who has been vaguely familiar with the scriptures would immediately recognize that the way that John begins his gospel is the way in which the Bible itself begins back in Genesis 1 with the phrase, in the beginning. John is intentionally drawing his readers, who would have been familiar with the gospel, back to the very beginning of scripture, where scripture, uh, the furthest point back in time that we can go in 
scripture where we launch our minds into eternity past in the beginning. The beginning in view here is the beginning of all things, the beginning of the universe itself, time, space, and matter. All things is where John brings us back to Genesis 1. And yet what would have been different for many of his readers is how John continues. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's readers would have been familiar with Genesis 1 that says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, with seemingly only one figure in view. And yet John broadens it out and says there were essentially two figures who are one and yet distinct in this scene. And John actually stands at the end of a long line of uh, revelation history where this uh, picture of this divine being who was with God the Father, who was the agent of God the Father in creation, in salvation history, how he has gradually become more and more prevalent and revealed throughout the course of Old Testament history. In Genesis 1-3, it says that God spoke into existence Light. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the water, separating water from water. And yet it's later in Psalm 33 where the psalmist says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens and earth were created. He, he takes this more personified, uh, more human sounding picture of the word to describe the creation act. That it wasn't some lifeless word that God had spoken into creation, but this was, a, this was a figure doing something in personified language. The word who was with God, who was God. The mystery of the Trinity finds its chief proof text here. God, John would have been very aware of the tension here and the seeming contradiction of how can the Word be God and yet be distinct from the Father God? Yet as mysterious as it may be, He holds them firmly. This one, He says in verse 2, was in the beginning with God. He was there. And He wasn't a, a, a bystander just watching what happened, but He was the active agent involved in creation. He says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, on, on the one hand, he's just restating, he states positively that all things were created through this word figure, and then restates it negatively, and not, not anything was made apart from him, to re-emphasize the point that he is the sole agent responsible for creation. But once again, John is actually taking some of the language from Genesis 1 to, to strengthen his point. And it's found in the fact that where he says apart from him, that word apart from him can also be translated separate from him. And it's actually the word that appears five times in Genesis 1, the idea of separating or being apart from that John is actually picking up on in his prologue here. Back in Genesis 1, God creates light. In seemingly impossible distinction, he's able to separate light from darkness. Things that doesn't have uh, tangible physical properties, an impossible task, seemingly, God is able to separate light from darkness. That word appears there, separate. 
Once again, in the few verses later, it says that God took the waters that, that uh, engulfed the earth and separated the waters from below the sky, the firmament, from the waters that were above the sky, the firmament. And it's a word that appears over and over and over again. God separating, making clear boundaries and distinctions within the creative order. And John sort of rhetorically is saying, the light was separated from the darkness, the waters were separated from the waters, and none of that was created separate from him. He's borrowing upon this language to say, to bring into further view, to further focus of who this being is. He is the one who created the universe, who Hebrews says, upholds the universe even now by the word of his power. John sees all this in eternity past, and then he begins to bring us up into the present and ultimately salvation future, where he says in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In this being was Life, the very essence of life. Jesus says later in John 5 that the Father has granted him to have life within himself and to impart life to others. He is the embodiment of light and life. And John says in in verse 5, the light shines, or perhaps more accurately, is shining right now, presently, present tense, in the darkness, and has not overcome it. The reason I say that, that John is sort of looking to salvation future and beginning to uh, project forward is because later on in this gospel, these uh, words that appear here here in verse 5 of the light shining in the darkness, the darkness not overcoming it, are words that Jesus later picks up again in one of his encounters with the people. The people ask who this Messiah, who this uh, Christ figure is, and Jesus responds rather obtusely. He says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The light is shining for a little while longer. Walk in that light, lest the darkness overtake you. And he picks up the same language. Jesus there is referring to his death. Being the light of the world, he's referring to a time where the light, as they know it, would be extinguished out of this world. And darkness would once again engulf the world, or so it would appear. John, the writer here, now standing at the end of Jesus' ministry and pinning this gospel down, is as if he remembers those words of Jesus, and he's the one that, that now at the beginning of his gospel says, the light was not eclipsed when Jesus was crucified. Rather, the light is still shining. Darkness did not overtake it. Here is a gospel invitation to all the world that John is setting at the very beginning of his gospel. The light is continuing to shine in the midst of the darkness. The Christ is alive. He was raised from the dead. What the Romans, what the Jews sought to do, what his friends, his disciples thought had happened to him and his being crucified and killed was not the end of the story. This is John's point. This figure coming into the world is continuing to speak even now to this day. He shifts gears a bit in verse 6. 
He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Some scholars have noted, particularly in verse 8, where it says that he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, that the reason that John writes this uh, in this verse is because some of his readers at this time would have been tempted to, to look at the life of John the Baptist and see how uh, passionate this man was for the glory of God, how, how ardently he, he strove after holiness and clung to God, that some might have mistaken him for the true light that was to come into the world, the Messiah himself. Even Jesus gives an incredible endorsement of this man, John the Baptist, the one who came before him to proclaim and, and herald the Christ coming into the world. Jesus himself says in Matthew 11 that of those born of woman, women, none have surpassed John. There is none greater than John. What he means there is in humility, in faithfulness, in righteousness, in purity, in love. None had eclipsed John. Even in this own gospel, he gives a, a glowing endorsement of, of John the Baptist where he says in, in John chapter 5, one of my favorite verses in this book, he summarizes John the Baptist's life after John has been beheaded uh, for speaking out against the unrighteousness of the king. Jesus summarizes John's life by saying in John chapter 5, verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. The fact that Jesus can summarize this man's life and say that for a moment in time, the moment that he was on this earth, the life that he lived on this earth, can be summarized as one in which light, the glory of God, emanated out of his life so brilliantly and so brightly while he was on this earth that those around him were, were enamored by it and drawn to it and they rejoiced in it because of the, the, the way in which he clung to God and proclaimed the truth of God. I've often said that, although don't in any way want to be a, a prophet as on the level that, that John is, that isn't that a, wouldn't that be a wonderful way that someone could summarize my life or summarize your life? That, that there goes a man, or that was a woman, who burned so brightly in this life they were a burning and shining lamp. The people around them rejoiced in that light for the time being. This is how, this is this man who, who God raised up and brought before the Messiah. This one who came into the world. And he clarifies, and the story sort of envelops a little bit more in verse 9 when he says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So he says that this man came into the world, this John figure, and then he describes the Christ as one who was still in the process of coming into the world. And what it seems like uh, John is bringing into view here is this, this time when uh, Jesus was still in the womb, but on his way into the world. I say that because we know from the other Gospels that John the Baptist was six months er older than Jesus. He was born six months before Jesus. And so if we take the, the, the tenses here in the text seriously, John is depicting a picture where John the Baptist is in the world, and yet Jesus is not yet in the world. 
but he's on his way. Which must mean he's giving us this picture of, this dramatic picture of a story enveloping. John the Baptist is born and the Messiah is coming behind him. This is a Christmas story from John's perspective. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He's on his way. Then he gives the summary statement, zooms out and gives a summary statement of what this figure would do when he entered the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, not only is he saying here that this one who created the world entered his creation, but if you look at the rest of John's gospel, it's clear that he often has a negative connotation associated with the idea of world. The world is seen in a negative light. For instance, if if you were to look at uh, John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world portrayed in a negative light. John 14, verse 17, he says, The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world, again, painted in a negative light. Even in John 3.16, one of the most beloved passages in the scriptures, where it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Even there, when it says God so loved the world, it's not, what's, not, what's in focus is not so much this great grand place of how big the world is, but what's being highlighted is how evil the world is, and yet how God would humble himself to enter into this dark world. As one scholar said, rather than being an endorsement of the world, it is a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be, admi- is to be admired in John 3.16, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. So throughout John's Gospel, and even here at the beginning in John chapter 1, when it says that this man, this holy, righteous one in whom is life and light, was coming into the world, it's as if to say he's entering a cesspool. He was entering a sewer. He was entering into a place where he would be defiled. And yet he's doing it of his own volition, willingly, with a purpose to bring light into the midst of darkness, a light that continues to shine even now to all who would draw near. Not only did he come to the world, but he came to his own, verse 11 says. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is how much the the darkness, the evil ways of the world had infected even the hearts of the, the Jewish people to whom Christ himself was born. Those who had the laws of God, the testaments of God, the promises of God, they had salvation history. They could look back at how God had time and time again redeemed their forefathers, their their stubborn-hearted forefathers. And yet, when the Christ came, because His ways, His righteousness, His light, so contrasted with their own hearts, they didn't recognize Him or embrace Him. It's a testament to just how depraved the human heart is that even His own people did not embrace the Christ when He came into this world. 
But verse 12 offers us hope. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe in his name is not just a mental ascent, but it contains all the ideas of embracing, of clinging to, of resting in, of confiding in, of rejoicing in this figure, this one. Rejoicing in the Christ. Those who, who trust and confide and cling to the Christ. He extended the scepter, so to speak, of entrance into heaven, entrance into the presence of God. And just in case anyone is tempted to believe that they wisened up one day and gave themselves, their own selves, the opportunity to go into uh, the presence of God and to be uh, united with him of their own choice. He clarifies in verse 13 a theme that he'll later completely unpack in verse 3, or chapter 3, where he says, Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When he says, not of blood, he's saying we, there's nobody on this earth who has a, a direct biological line to the family of God. We all stand as those who are aliens outside the gates of paradise. We have no claim to the throne. We don't have a claim to the inheritance of the earth that God gives to his children. None of us are biologically connected to him, nor did any of us of the will of the flesh, it says, choose him. That is a voluntary choice in and of our own power. None of us have the power to overcome our heart's rebellion and cling to the Christ, nor of the will of man, or man can also be translated husband. Like this is, you're just saying again that this isn't, uh, this birth that I'm talking about isn't the type of birth that naturally happens from a father, um, bringing into this world a son or a daughter that is entirely of God. The one who embodied light himself also came and actively shone that light into the hearts of his people, of those who would turn to him, causing them to run to him, causing them to embrace him, to flee to him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This was an active mission that continued even after he came into the world, that continues even now. John's point again back in verse 5. He is the one that is doing the shining, that is penetrating dark hearts and imploding calluses around the heart and causing people to see the light and come to him. Finally, in verse 14, this is John's way of quickly depicting the Christ finally coming into the world. He started in eternity past. He gave us a glimpse of the Christ coming into the world. And finally, verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when he says he became flesh, this would have been 
even in that day, it would have been taboo to suggest that the spiritual, the, the divine, uh, the celestial could, could be combined at all with, with, and limited by physical, corrupt matter, it seems like. Everything, in many circles, it, it was thought that everything physical in this world, tangible in this world, is sort of a limitation, so to speak, and is, it is less than what, what a holy and infinite and righteous God would debase himself to. So it would have been shocking for his readers to hear the fact that this God, this God who, who dwells in, at heights infinitely above this world, debased himself to such a degree that he would dwell among us, that he would enclose himself with flesh, that he would diminish his glory, so to speak, to redeem a fallen people. And yet John Boley proclaims just that. The Word became flesh. It says that he dwelt among us. The word for dwelt can mean, is the word that, that more literally means he, he pitched a tent or he tabernacled among us. He erected a, a permanent dwelling amongst us. It's a word that often appears in the Old Testament, like when God calls the Israelites into the desert and he tells them to pitch a tent for his glory to dwell, for at least his presence, although not bodily form, God's presence, even with the Israelites, was said to dwell in the midst of this tabernacle. And from there they would speak with him and meet with him. John here is picking up on that language and saying that this Christ, not only did he come and visit amongst us, but he dwelt. He, so to speak, set up a tabernacle, a fleshly tabernacle, a place where we could see him face to face, see him in bodily form, in tangible form. He says later in his other book, the book of 1 John, he goes on to say that we saw with our own eyes, we handled this word, this preexistent God who came into the world. We, we saw him. We saw this infinite being in, in limited form and yet full and replete with grace and truth oozing from his being. He dwelt among us, John says, and we've seen his glory. The Christ came into the world and we've seen his glory. He goes on, it, it, from verse 15 onward, it's as if he looks backwards once more in his prologue here. He starts in eternity past and he gradually brings us up into where the Christ enters to the world and then he looks back to the past again from this point here on in verse 15. And it's sort of a, a, a convoluted uh, argument that he builds here with a whole bunch of becauses or fours, like at the beginning of verse 16, the beginning of verse 17, like he's building an argument here that, moving slowly, we can unpack it and see just what he's getting at. So in verse 15, he says, John bore witness, that's John the Baptist, looking back at the man he identified in verses 6 through 8. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now that last clause, that he was before me, John the writer here knows that people are going to wonder, what do you mean that he was before you? What are you, what are you saying? At? What are you getting at? How was it that he was before you? And so that's why it leads him into verse 16. For or because, okay, the reason that I'm saying he was before me is because from his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. The phrase grace upon grace can also be translated grace in place of grace. A new grace in place of a grace that was already there, that supplanted an old grace. He gave us grace before, and now he's giving us grace again, is what he's saying. But how does that help us to understand how it is that this person pre-existed? And well, he goes on to, to unpack further. What do you mean that, that he gave us grace upon grace, is the question he's answering in verse 17. Because the law was given through Moses, the grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You would almost expect him to use the same verbs in, in both of these descriptions. Like You would expect him to say that the law was given, to, given through Moses. Grace and truth was given through Jesus Christ. If he was just trying to give a, a then and now scenario of like, Moses came before and now Jesus came now. But he intentionally uses different verbs there. He says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth actually came through Jesus Christ. It's as if he's saying that Moses gave the law, but the grace and truth that was imparted through the law, both then and now, came through Jesus Christ. Well, how is that the case? How do you know that? And his bedrock is verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The reason this is, this is where he lands is because as soon as he says, no one has ever seen God, any Jew would have objected to that point and said, wait a minute, what about Moses? And that would have been the most prominent example in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses pled with God to show him his glory and God took Moses hid him in a cleft high up in the mountain and passed before him and allowed God allowed Moses to see his glory. So a Jew would have thought, wait, didn't Moses see God, the Father? John's point is that it wasn't the Father that Moses saw. Normally when the apostle writer and gospel writers use God, they're referring to God the Father, and that would be the case here. When he says, no one has ever seen God the Father, is his point. The God who is at the Father's side, or the word that he introduced in verse 1, he is the one that has made him known. He's the one that Moses saw, that passed before Moses, is his point. So now working up to like piece the pieces together, this is sort of, this is almost like, way of reorganizing his argument here. He says that it was Christ who revealed himself to Moses when Moses was hidden in that cleft. Therefore, it was Christ that spoke to Moses. It was Christ that dictated the law to Moses. It was Christ that gave Moses the the, the Ten Commandments uh, and the rest of the Torah. Therefore, in in verse 17, you back up, that's the reason why he says the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth actually came from Christ, Jesus Christ, he is the source of grace and truth. He was the one that gave it to Moses. And yet he is the one now that is giving us a new grace in place of this grace. A superior grace. He is the one that gave the law to Moses, but he's giving more to us now. 
He is the one that revealed himself in part to Moses, but he is the one that has tabernacled and dwelt among us in bodily form now. Therefore, John can say, he was before me. He comes after me, but he was before me. This Christ, John takes this prologue, the gospel writer John takes this prologue and he he points back in eternity past and he gradually gives us this, this picture of the Christ coming into the world and taking flesh among us, dwelling among us, and points us again back to his preexistence. And if you were just to go back and read the account of, of when the Christ revealed himself to Moses, his coming was, was accompanied by loud peals of thunder and lightning, so much so that the Israelites, some probably a million or so people that stood at the base of the mountain, all trembled and quaked at the frightening sounds, the deafening thunder of the presence of God, so just loudly crashing upon them at they asked that Moses would go and intercede for them. They were so afraid of the presence of God. Accompanied by thunder, peals of, peals of thunder and lightning and billows of smoke and pillars of fire. This was an incredible scene that terrified the people of God when Christ revealed himself to them. Particularly to Moses. These are all the things that would have been this imagery that would have been stirred up in the mind of the original readers of this gospel. Yet when Christ comes in the flesh, he's not accompanied by peals of thunder, lightning, smoke, fire. We read of him coming in a manger of lowly beginnings, quiet hillside, And yet this is the same God. John wants us to see the other side of this baby in the manger that so dominates our our minds and our images during uh, this Christmas season. Who this figure, this being really was, of how great this being was, creating the universe, sustaining the universe, imparting the law to Moses some thousands of years ago, and yet coming now, taking on flesh, and erecting a permanent dwelling amongst mankind, a permanent connection through which he may shine the light of his glory, the life of God, to all who would respond to him, who would embrace him, believe in him. And as John says, that light continues to shine even now. This is John's account of the Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how you use it to give us different perspectives, different angles on the same event. How you can use Matthew and Mark and Luke to show us the the humble beginnings of the Messiah, the story of a frightened mother, a father who felt betrayed, of lowly shepherds coming in from the fields and being granted access to 
the king of glory, along with some of the most wealthy merchants in that time, bringing him gifts as well. How we can see all these things from one angle, and yet you also allow us to see more. That it wasn't just a small child that was coming into this world inaugurating the first Christmas. But this was the pre-existent Word of God. The one that had created the heavens and the earth. The one through whom everything was made. And apart from Him, separate from Him, nothing was made. Anything that exists in this universe exists at His hand, including ourselves. We who have been knit together and sewn together by You and are sustained by Your power, it is because of this being who 2,000 years ago entered this world and began a great redemptive work to free people of their sins to liberate them from the shackles of addiction, of anger, of malice, of bitterness, of evilness, of hopelessness, and granting them access into your presence, into paradise forevermore. From those who trust in you from early stages of of life to those who like the thief on the cross, are given a slight glimpse before they part from this world and are fully welcomed into your presence in the next moment. We just thank you for what Christmas is truly about. We pray that you would help us to reflect on this more than any other thing during this time. And Christ would be precious to us and that thankfulness would ring from our hearts and songs would erupt from our lips. Praise to this great God who has entered this world and redeemed us. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.